0: Welcome to the Crexy Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. Each episode, the Crexy team dives into a broad range of topics to investigate trends, educate listeners, and understand the latest industry news. As the nation's fastest growing online CRE platform, we're excited to provide a window into the inner workings of commercial real estate for this generation and the next.
1: Welcome. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of the correct podcast an insiders look at all things commercial real estate. I'm your host, Eli Randall. And today we are thrilled to sit down with the most famous person in real estate, the notorious Kyle Matthews, founder, chairman, CEO of Matthews real estate investment services. Before we dive in a little bit about our guest, Kyle Matthews leads Matthews real estate investment services, a commercial real estate and technology firm with 22 offices and over 600 personnel nationwide. The firm is a leader in commercial real estate brokerage, providing advisory services in sales, leasing, and debt capital markets. Since Kyle founded the company in 2015, Matthews has become the fastest growing commercial real estate firm in the country, is the largest privately held brokerage platform in the U.S., and has successfully closed over 15,000 transactions totaling $41 billion in sales volume. Kyle has an extensive background in the industry with an aggregate value of $9 billion in transaction volume closed. In 2022 alone, Kyle led Matthews to complete $14 billion in sales, closing over 5,000 transactions, a 56% increase year over year. Prior to starting Matthews, Kyle served as a vice president of investments and thereafter as executive vice president at two publicly traded commercial real estate firms. Kyle has an extensive list of notable clients, including some of the largest global institutional companies, REITs, and private equity funds and development companies. Sure. Kyle, how you doing? I'm good. Good, good, good. Thanks for having us here. Appreciate the hospitality and your beautiful studio.
2: And I, I'm happy to, to
1: get use out of it. Great, great. And I should note, you uh, seem to be the most famous person in commercial real estate. Uh, Out to dinner last night, we were noticed by multiple people. It was very uh, interesting.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, they were paid actors. I just want you to know that.
1: Awesome. I suspected so much. Well, let's start off. Will you give us your origin story? Where'd you grow up? What kind of
2: kid were you? So I'm from planet Earth. And uh, no, I'm just joking. I uh, I had a, a an interesting childhood. I had a blessed childhood. Um, I grew up in a couple different places, believe it or not. So, Cleveland, Ohio; Los Angeles, California; and Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, it's no no mystery, no secret why my 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 dad is uh, Clay Matthews Jr. He's a football player. So he played for the um, the Cleveland Browns for. 16 years I want to say and then the Falcons for three or four after that and w- what that meant as a kid was and, and this was a very unique part it's even new, unique to the NFL was during this season we would move to where he played which predominantly was Cleveland so from you know mid to late July all the way to the end of the season usually you know December 31st let's call it I would live in um, Cleveland specifically Strongsville Ohio until I was about, thirteen. And then in the off season we would as soon as the season was over, or the regular season, sometimes they would go deep into playoffs, but we would we would be back in LA. So we'd move back to Southern California. And uh we did that till I was thirteen. And then when my dad finished his career with the Falcons, we did that same cadence, but instead of Cleveland it went to Atlanta, um Lilburn, Georgia to be specific. And and so I um you know again I grew up in Cleveland, Atlanta, LA uh, I moved every 6 months of my life uh, until my dad retired from football I was I believe around 16 years old so you know he had a he had the long, he had a long he had a 19 year career I think think pretty confident he's played the most games in NFL history as a linebacker 280 290 somewhere around there and every 6 months we'd move back and forth and uh, the good news is most of the time I'd be going back to the same school but not always you know there were four or five times you get dropped in new school and so that was uh, that was always a challenge, you know, to to fit in. And you know, I'm sure we'll dive in later. It's developing emotional intelligence. I'm I'm confident that all those moves uh, ultimately helped me, at least in my professional career. Um, there certainly were moments as a kid where your parents were like, all right, hey, we're moving, we're going, you know, packing up and going somewhere different. That was, uh, you know, that was um, that was tough. But even at a young age, I kind of learned that you know, happiness is a choice, and you could either look at a move and be, you know, be committed to being upset and miserable about, it. you could look at it as a new opportunity to meet new friends and see something new. And and, uh, over time I developed that. And again, that also, I think helped me later on in life. But I think you asked the question, what my childhood was like, moved around a lot, um, played a lot of sports, you know, played, you know, four seasons for soccer, baseball, basketball, later on, um, football and, uh, yeah. I have, uh, four siblings. I got, I have an older sister and I got three younger brothers. And so the house was uh, chaotic. It was a very intense house. Um, I would describe Matthews as uh, Spartans. Like it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a calling so to speak. Um, our house was very fun in that it was like the YMCA, uh, At at all times everybody had a friend at the house. So even though there were five kids, there were always 10 to 15 at the house. And my mom, um, you know, bless her heart, as they say in the south, she was always feeding them everybody, so it kept them coming back. In our house, had the most snacks and candy, so you know that also was a was a plus. But
1: any of those snacks or candy stand out? Any uh, that that still no, come to mind?
2: You know, it, hopefully my kids don't listen to this because I don't let them eat sugar cereal because I think now we're aware that it's probably not good for you to be crushing Lucky Charms and Fruity Pebbles. But like we had all the we had the whole sugar cereal aisle, we had any type of chips, candy, uh Snickers, Twix, Skittles, ice cream, juice, soda, everything. I mean it's it's amazing that uh the Matthews are uh, you know, I'll speak for the other guys as big and strong and fast as they are given our diet intake, but uh but we figured it out. But yeah, it was it was a it was a fun childhood. It was a very active, you know, in sports and moving and people at the house and there just was never a mo- a dull moment. You know, I know that's a cliche saying. There was never a dull moment, and there was always energy and noise and chaos. But it was, it, you know, it's when it's all you've ever known. It's it's normal, and um, it was a lot of fun. I'm very, again, like I, I said at the start, very very blessed.
1: And how to having that last name shape your path? I'm assuming you were pretty well known in these communities. Any also career ambitions you can remember at early age?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean. In, being a Matthews is a, is a blessing. Like on a net basis, it is, it's a privilege. It's a privilege that I didn't earn and it was given to me. Uh, so, uh, that also comes with a responsibility and I could touch on that in a second, but it was a privilege of, yes, it was, uh, especially in Cleveland and, and Georgia, but even in LA, they're just, you know, everybody knows and that's cool. And, um, there it created a uh, unique um experiences in that as a kid uh <laughs> you got to kind of evaluate your your emotional intelligence has to increase quick cuz not everybody who was your friend was maybe your friend for the right reasons like cuz they actually liked you maybe it's cuz they were they were looking for access um invite to the games like go to locker room after meet players and and again it wasn't all that but there's there's certain of that the the challenge was there are some kids who didn't like it. And, um, especially again, I didn't, my childhood wasn't terrible at all, but you know, in the mid nineties, there was still bullying and you still could get your ass kicked. And so that happened. I was really small, um, at at the time, luckily I grew, but as a kid, I was very small and very skinny. And, um, you know, you get dropped into a new school and especially if you're culturally, not necessarily from there. Um, and then they find out that, you know, your dad is some NFL star. So, you know, some kids didn't take likely to that, so I had to figure that out, and you know, either get them to like me as quickly as possible, or just avoid them as much as I could. But, uh, but yeah, it was it was different. You know, we were talking earlier somehow. We were talking about you know, it's like you go out to dinner, and you know, you very quickly realize that everybody in the restaurant is aware that you're there, and it just you just, it's just a different experience. And um, all, all all told, it was it was awesome. You know, it's uh, how many people get to watch their dad work on Sunday. Right. And, uh, so that was really cool. Um, but, but because again, I, you know, not to keep saying the same thing, but because it's all I knew is very normal, very normal. And I, as I got older, you, you look back and you have perspective, you know, or you hope you get perspective and and the perspective teach you that that wasn't normal. And you can start to kind of understand how it wasn't. But as a kid, you're like, yeah, my dad plays football at a very high level. We move every six months. Uh, everybody's always kind of coming at us for whatever reason. Um, I'll tell you another hard thing was, uh, you know, again, uh, there's a lot of benefits. One of the drawbacks now, there isn't social media, thank God at the time, but there's sports talk radio. And, um, you know, I was always, we had a lot of kids and we didn't have a ton of help in the sense of like all these nannies or whatever. So inevitably with two parents and five kids, you're, you're often carpooling, you're carpooling to school, you're carpooling home from, you know, practice and, a lot of uh, the parents, especially in a Cleveland or something, would put on sports talk radio and, and having someone talk about your dad, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively was uh, even though, again, I say it was normal. It, that, that could be tough. You know, you, you, you know, your dad, he makes the best effort he can on a Sunday, but maybe he misses the tackle or he drops the pick or he gets a penalty and having a bunch of lazy slob DJs on the radio, just ripping your dad saying, Hey, they should cut them. It's like, well, that's my dad's job. And you're basically on the radio saying you should fire my father. And that, that as a nine-year-old kid that it, it takes, you know, it's hard to compartmentalize that. And I still have a lot of resentment towards those people, you know, just hearing them very casually, You know, recommend to a very broad audience that your dad should be fired from his job—that you know, things like that. And again, there was no social media, but I—I've been blessed to have a lot of brothers and cousins who played, who current still play in the league. Um, And uh, social media by then, but again, I was older, so I, you know, I just didn't look. But you know, there's blessings of it, and then there's also like, you know, you go on Twitter and read what someone posts about one of your younger brothers. Like, if they ever said that in real life, you'd beat the shit out of them. And uh, but you can't do that. So you just got to kind of you just work through it.
1: And is that where some of that work ethic came from? I'm assuming on the field, you and your siblings had targets on your back. People wanted to, you know, make a name for themselves mm. with a big hit on a Matthews. Is that where you guys had work? all the more harder just to live up to the name and to overcome. Yeah, well,
2: that. look, the Matthews play so long in the NFL with us because so, we don't get hit. We avoid it now. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's certainly I could only imagine, you know, kids, how about parents? Like I had my boy beat the Matthews kid in you know, a foot race or a tackle or whatever, but, um, the, so a couple, yeah, a couple of things in there to Pack. uh, you target on the field. I'm certain of it. Like I would say as a kid, probably less aware of that than I would have been as a parent, you know? Um, but, but, uh, the work ethic part, it, it, yeah, that's a, that's a culture of our family. And, um, I get asked this question a lot about football and like, Oh, did your dad put pressure on you to play football? No, like 0%. In fact, they didn't even sign me up for football. I signed myself up in ninth grade. I didn't play football till high school. I played soccer. That was my fall sport, and probably should have stuck with that, right? But, uh, but there was no pressure. In fact, I think when you know I was in high school and I was, you know, the opportunity to play in college at USC was presented. My dad, I think one time casually, is like, "Hey, you know, you don't have to play football because I played." I was like, "Yeah, I know, Dad." He goes, "Okay, cool." Like that—that that was the conversation. And so, um, <clears throat> it wasn't. We never were pressured to do. Anything other than whatever we chose to do, you had to go 100%. That was the only rule. There was no – the 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 amount of love and affection my parents showed us as kids, which was a lot, had nothing to do with the amount of goals you scored or baskets, points you put up or touchdowns, it had nothing to do with that. I'm, they rooted for us. I'm sure they cheered when we scored. But it the only um, – judgment that came from our parents was effort and it just there was an expectation it was clearly communicated to us just to be clear that you had to go 100 percent at all times and that if you didn't do that there would be problems other than that you you just gave your maximum effort and you know parents can tell and, and you know luckily I, i'll speak for myself my sister and my brothers we 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 never called their bluff i would say we did go full speed um and uh that was it that was the only that was only requirement that was the only rule that was the only expectation in the Matthews household. So ultimately to, to your question, what that led to when you go from playing a sport, you know, as a kid or teenager to playing a sport as an adult, which, you know, ideally as a metaphor is your career. Um, when I got into real estate, I just knew the only thing I really had to focus on was going full speed and, you know, for full speed for me may be different than full speed for someone else, but full speed for me was getting in the office at 6am, staying till 830, you know, in brokerage, early on, you have no business, you start by making cold calls to set meetings and made more cold calls than anyone, set more meetings than anyone, pitch more deals than anyone. And eventually I got better and started actually winning business and executing. Um, it wasn't a fast start. But again, getting back to your question, yeah, you know, being a Matthews, there was an understanding that you were going to go 100% at all times. And, and ultimately, that be, that, I guess, created the work ethic that I have today did I answer your question
1: you did yeah yep. thank you those principles could apply in any field so why real estate how did you end up in the industry was it something you always uh, gravitated towards or did you stumble upon it
2: yeah uh, my my dad owns a 24 unit apartment building that he bought from my mom's father his his father-in-law he was gonna sell it and his my dad was like hey why don't I buy he's like yeah sure and they you know probably handshake green on a price and he purchased it. And, um, that, that was really the main investment he had from real estate. Um, You know, again, the Matthews family, we weren't sitting around talking about, you know, investment portfolios and stocks and bonds and all that. But, uh, because I was the oldest boy, you know, there's, there's privileges that come with the oldest boy. You know, you get invited to the movies with your dad, you might go to a game with your dad, but, but the downside is I had to go do the I had to go do the dirty work which again it's not that dirty but you know it's Saturday my dad's like hey we got to go to the apartment building to collect the laundry coins like back then all laundry was just coins nowadays I think it's mostly cards right but um you know he he had this routine every month and this is what I re- I remember he was replacing the roof he's like we need to go to the building and we want we're going to go look at the roof replacement and again I'm I'm 9 I'm 12 I'm 15 I'm I'm not really interested but while there, you know, you, you, just can't help yourself to, you know, maybe he's eliciting the conversation. Maybe I'm just asking a random question. Like, Hey dad, what is this building? He's like, well, this is an apartment building. Uh, who are these people? And he's like, well, these are people, each of them live in a unit. You know, some are one bedroom and one bath, some are two bedroom and one bath, two bedroom, two bath. And they pay me rent every month. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm, in my head, I'm, I'm making this conversation up, but I know it happened. It's like, well, what's rent? It's like, well, they pay me money every month. And I remember, I do remember thinking, so let me get this straight. You own this building and these people live here and every month they have to pay you rent. Well, that's pretty cool. I want to, I want to do that. I want to own a building where people give me money every month. Like it's, I, as I've gotten older, I found out it's much more complicated there. You know, you need a lot of capital. There's there's management responsibilities, there's risk. Right. And, but as a, as a simple minded, you know, 12 year old kid, I was like, wait, so they just give you money every month. I want to do that. And so that actually is where my, my enthusiasm, my interest, my, my, what eventually developed into a love of real estate came from was, you know, non-football related. That was the only exposure I had to any real investment class. No one in my, think about this. My grandfather played football for the 49ers. He ended up having a a very successful professional career. um, As he ended up becoming CEO of a publicly traded company, but it was he was much older. I wasn't born yet, so I didn't have access. I just knew he played football and all that. And then my dad played football. My uncle played football. That was the males, right? And then, uh, and this was before even my brothers and cousins. So like all the Matthews family, all I really knew was football. So there wasn't really access to what I call the professional world or the financial world. No one no one with the last name Matthews that I knew wore a suit and tie to work, right? And so the only exposure I actually had to a white collar professional services industry was was real estate by way of this one building where simply put, I was like, these guys give you money every month. That's so cool. That's, so if you probably asked me at 15, I had zero consideration on what I was going to do in my life. But if I forced to answer, I'd be like real estate. So the answer to your question how did I, you know, really get into real estate or how did that kind of come about? Was, was this random building my dad owned and me, you know, I know I protested. Like my dad's like, hey, you got to go with me. Like, Why do I have to go? Why doesn't Brian go or Clay or Casey? It's like, well, you're the oldest. That's what you do. And but in many ways that that opened my eyes and, and lit the spark that eventually, again, became a love of this industry of commercial real estate.
1: Love that. So you went back to your home base, which was L.A., um, at the end of high school, and you went to USC, go Trojans, and uh, played ball there, is that correct? Mm-hmm. After USC, you began your career in real estate. It's pretty well known. You had a prolific brokerage career. Did you hit the ground running in the early years in the industry, or did you run into a learning curve?
2: No, it uh, hit the ground running. I just hit the ground. You know, um, That's the best way I could put it. So uh, let me just make this simple. I started in October, 2004, and I closed my first deal in March of 2006. So it was uh, 17 to 18 months. I don't know the exact start dates, but uh, it was a very, very slow start. It was the slowest start. And um, I went to a training class at the company I was at of, you know, whatever, 60 people from around the country. And there were five or six people just in my office. And I was the last in every group, in every metric, you know, other than cold calls and hours, I'm saying like I was the last to earn his first listing. I was the last to put, put a deal on a contract. I was the last to close a deal. I was dead last in everything other in outputs and results. I was first in inputs in hours and calls and meetings and proposals. And so really that's a testament to how bad I was at brokerage, right? That I was putting the most in and getting the, le- the least out. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I, I didn't have a real estate finance degree. I really didn't have any background in real estate. No one in my family was effectively a real estate professional. I didn't have any relationships. I had no sales experience. And I am naturally not a sales personality. I've developed it over the years, but I'm very, I am a very by nature, shy and introverted person. And so in many ways, I couldn't be worse for the job I chose. But um, that amongst many reasons contributed to a very, very difficult start as I would, you know, a non-start. Right. But, um, but eventually I figured it out and, and eventually, yeah, you know, I'd, I did okay.
1: Was there an aha moment or it was just a maturation in the process that had to unfold?
2: No, I just, it just, you know, there were moments, um, but not like, I went from bad to good there were moments that made me from bad to not as bad and not as bad to okay and okay to solid and solid to good and good to great and hopefully my goal was always to be the greatest of all time you know and and i'll have that conversation with whoever wants to have it and uh it's um you know when it closed my first deal okay that was a moment where it's just it was just a monkey off my back like again there's a quote, and I'm going to butcher it, and maybe you could Google it or something. It's like, in your 20s, you think everyone's talking about you. In your in your 40s, you think no one's talking about you. In your 60s, you realize they never were talking about you. You know, something like that. But in my 20s, it was like, you know, everyone's talking about how I haven't closed a deal. You know, it's just people in their 20s are is super self-absorbed, and I was too. Like, everybody's talking about it. Everybody's laughing behind my back. Like, whatever narrative I had to spin up in my head to create whatever motivation I needed um you know you see it in the athlete community often it's like yeah the the whole world doubted us and it's like no you didn't you're the preseason favorites to win the super bowl what are you talking about but like you you create these narratives in your head as to why um everyone's doubting you like whatever gets you up but but um there wasn't like an aha moment when I when I closed my first deal the first time I, I earned at the company I was at like a sales award the first time I closed a certain size deal a certain size check like they're they're just little milestones is what I call them little 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 uh, little level ups but it's just it's a it's a it's a um, it's a process it's an evolution it's an individual evolution um, of who you are as a professional and and some of that is sales skills some of that is certain product knowledge right some of that is just confidence by saying hey I've, I've been here before and I've won I've taken the shot and I made it like I have earned a listing. I have closed the deal. I have made this benchmark. This sales war, like I've done it before, which means I can do it again. And then every time you just you just kind of go a level up, and it resets. You know, I always say you move your own goalposts. It creates a new normal, and you just you keep you keep climbing that mountain.
1: I uh, love the imagery of a young Kyle Matthews
2: putting. A... Well, hold on. Let me let me set that imagery. I I speaking of lack of experience, I probably was wearing like a pink shirt, okay, a yellow tie taupe suit very Miami vice yeah no but but I wasn't even trying to be Miami like my Miami vice is like that that's a choice I wasn't even making the choice like I was I was just broke and I had no fashion sense and like even if I was the most qualified I walk in the door people like I ain't hiring this guy you know so uh I found a picture recently I think I posted it on uh what was that is that yeah, I posted on Twitter, like, I don't know, six months ago. It was the only picture I have of, like, that era. And it's so bad, man. It's so bad. Like, you know, man, I must have been working hard to have overcome my my fashion sense at the time. So
1: We'll, uh, we'll edit that picture in post-production.
2: Has yeah, to let's be, do uh, it. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah,
1: for sure. Any uh, mentors along the way? At least in this era, we'll talk later yeah. about being a business builder yeah. and who helped steer you. But uh, uh, this era, any mentors?
2: You know, I had, I had to, um, both have passed unexpectedly, unfortunately. So, um, my dad's best friend, Jim Hasty, uncle Jimbo, he was actually a residential real estate agent. And so if I had any access to real estate, it was through him. Now I, I did, you know, I knew he was in real estate, but again, I just wasn't mentally plugged in at the time, but he, he was someone I very near and dear to, to me and my family. And, um, he had a little brokerage, but I didn't even know it was a brokerage business until I had a brokerage business one day. And, um, you know, we lost him, we lost him about 15 years ago to cancer. And so that, that was, you know, he was a mentor the first couple of years and then, you know, unfortunately lost him. And then, um, but again, not he wasn't a direct mentor, like in my office, he was just someone I could call, you know, once a month or two and, And then uh, the other one wasn't a a direct mentor. I've never had a a direct mentor. So, in that sense, like, no, I I don't have someone like that in my life. I've never had someone, I don't have a board, I don't have advisors. Like, it just, I just, you know, just kind of follow my gut. But there are a lot of people who've helped along the way. And another guy who helped along the way and and provided some mentorship, whether he he wanted to or not, there's a guy, John Walsh. And John was the number one agent at the company I started at, Marcus Milichab. And I looked up to him uh, tremendously a very tough guy, very, uh, like in the sense, like if you said something dumb around him, he would, he would eat you alive. If you, if you didn't have a valid argument behind a position, he would chop it up into a million pieces. But I learned that way, you know? And, uh, I don't, I don't know. I can't have this conversation again. I, I lost John a couple of years ago to, uh, uh, to suddenly. And, um, I don't know if he signed up. It's like, oh, I'm going to go out of my way to mentor this guy. But I think I was just I just wouldn't let him not, you know, i it's, it's like, um, I always found a way to walk into his office and ask him a question. He wasn't my senior. We didn't really work on any, very many deals. I think we had one or two deals in our whole life, but, but he was an SC guy. And then, uh, weirdly enough, one of my brothers got drafted, the Packers. He was from green Bay, Wisconsin. So like, we always had that, uh, that connection, but, um, you know, John was a mentor to me, um, by watching him and watching how he, he approached his business. And, uh, he was, he was a terminator dude. He was, uh, he was the most efficient, professional I've ever met and and I do my best to model and emulate that mindset uh, but I, you know I also have my own style and then another guy again someone who helped me tremendously I mean he gave me a start is Jonathan Weiss he was a, ma- a hiring manager of the office I was hired to in Encino very accomplished agent who became a very accomplished uh, executive at, at at Marcus at the time he hired me so just simply put he gave me an opportunity uh, CBRE did not hire me Cushman and Wakefield did not hire me you know, so, uh, you know, there's an agent at CB. I don't know where he is today. I'm, I'm sure he's in the business. Sean Daisy, I think, said, I don't think he'll be successful. So what's up, Sean? <laughs> um, and uh, there's a guy, Joe Vargas at Cushman. I don't know if he's in the business. I'm sure he is. What's up, Joe? You know, it's uh, Marcus. They hired me. So a lot of love for that company and a lot of love for Jonathan Weiss who took a shot. And then Jonathan, um, was the manager of the office. So I'd say if there was a direct role, it'd probably mostly be, uh, Jonathan Weiss, who's retired, retired, very, very, very successful guy, retired him and his wife, Jody up in this gorgeous house in Montecito living, living the good life. So, uh, I always enjoy my trips up there when I, when I talk to Jonathan. So those are the three. And then of course, um, my father, my dad, Clay, uh, he's always been, you know, my hero. He's always been my, um, my mentor, like my life mentor, but, um, uh, it just really, it's like, um, my dad's mindset in life is like, you never self promote, which in sales is hard. I've had to actually do better at that. It's like social media. I never had it. Cause I was like, why would I just go around like post pictures of myself or like, Hey, I did this or we did that. It's very unnatural because of how we were raised. It's the furthest thing it, it, my dad couldn't be more uncomfortable with that. I and mean, he raised this that way. So his, his mentality, and he would say, you know, it's like, let your play do your talking. And the, and, and he, he meant that from a literal sense of like, in the NFL, you literally like, he's like, I'll let my play do my talking. I'm not going to go out and promote myself for pro bowls or all pros, or even he, he missed the hall of fame last year in the NFL by like, a, like one vote, Right. And he won't, he won't go out and promote himself. My sister credit to her, Jennifer, she's a, she's a savage She's the savage. She's an animal, man. She she single handedly made that happen and got my dad's name out there and promoted him and like got him to the doorsteps and he just missed. So you know maybe next year we'll have a party in Canton at some point. But um, he just was always like, let your play do your talking. And so you know that plus the the effort plus just modeling his behavior very much a, a mentor, a life mentor. Um, not necessarily a real estate brokerage, you know, I think I asked my dad for business advice when I started and he, you know, very casually said, make more money than you spend. And so I've always tried to do that. Great. Good advice. Yep. Uh, So
1: before we move on from brokerage, is there a memorable deal that comes to mind? One that stands out to you? Maybe you wish you were on the sales side or the buy side. Is there, you know, one that's a mental trophy in your trophy case?
2: Uh, yeah, it, not in a good way. It just, um, it was October, 2005. So I was out of, I was in the business 12 months and, um, you know, I had my first big deal under contract. It was a, a property in El Monte called Flair Plaza. The seller was Bob Sonnenblick, Sonnenblick Del Rio. And the buyer was Shaul, Shaul Cuba. Um, not Shaul Cuba. I'm sorry. Let me, let me, let me start this over. I've mixed them up. Yeah, there's uh, there's there's one, not for good reasons, but it, again, it's it's what more valuable than the paychecks is often the learning lessons, you know, and uh, this was a tough, this was just a tough moment. It was 2005, October 2005, so I was about a year in the business and still, you know, what I, unbeknownst to me at the time, probably another six months before I'd make a dollar and I had this big deal on her contract and it actually was a, like a solid deal. It's was like, okay, this is going to make... It was bucks, four four-point fee. I was going to make, I think, hundred grand because there was another agent on it. I was on a 50-50 split. So, um, you know, some... no, let me start over. All right, one more time. I want to make sure I get this right. Yeah, there's one deal that stands out. It was, uh, it's not for good reasons, but, you know, in terms of value, oftentimes the lesson's more valuable than the check. So it's a deal that didn't make, but I remember it very vividly, as you will uh, shortly see. It was October um Two thousand five, and uh, this deal was under contract. It was Flair Plaza in El Monte. The seller was Sonnenblick Del Rio, Bob Sonnenblick, and the buyer was Shaul Levy, Levy Enterprises, two three three West uh, Wilshire Boulevard in Santa Monica. I remember the office? And um, it was a seven million dollar deal at a four point fee. And I there's another agent on it, and you know with a fifty fifty, I was going to net like 70000 70, bucks as a twenty three year old. I mean, I changed life life changing. A lot of money. A lot of. It was a lot of money today. Yeah. All right. So. And it was a good deal. It should have made. And, um, you know, we went non-refundable with like half a million dollars, which again, you know, follow me. If you're not in real estate, just know that 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 increases the probability of deals closing to like 99%. When a buyer has half a million bucks that if they walk away, you know, and and keep in mind, this is 2005. The market is roaring. Every deal is being closed, you know, is, is successfully closing. Yep. So in my head, new agents have this problem anyway. You can start count paycheck. I mean you get a listing, you start counting that paycheck, right? But uh but I started counting that paycheck and I said, Okay, like I am already the last to you know, get a listing, I'm the last to put a deal under contract and I'll be the last to close one. But I'll close one, it'll be a big one, it'll change my life, it'll give me it'll release some of my financial anxiety of just not having money and being in debt and all that. But um, it was the day before Thanksgiving. Now, deal had been non-refundable for a certain amount of time, and I get a call. You know, let's just call it November 25th, and I get a call from the buyer, show and he goes, "Hey, Kyle, like I, I want to cancel the deal." I'm like, "What do What do you mean?" He goes, "I talked to one of the tenants, and they're not doing well, and you know, the seller knows this, and he's been hiding it from me. I want to cancel it." And it's like, "Well, you know, shall First of all, in the contract, it said you couldn't talk to the tenants. Um, number two, every tenant's going to tell you that. What do they say? Hey, I'm crushing it. Feel free to raise my rent. You know, and." And number three, look, you have a half a million dollars hard, like you're not going to walk away. And you know, I'm going to just paraphrase it. He said, "Yeah, he's like, uh, none of that matters. Um, I'm going to get my money back. And if the seller tries to take it, I'm going to tie you up in court for three, four years, and I'll sue. You, I'll sue you and your firm personally too." It was, it was pretty aggressive. And I, I just remember like I was at my parents' house because it was the day before Thanksgiving. I didn't have kids, so I was like going to sleep in my old bedroom, right? You know, just be around family. And um, I just kind of, like, sat down. I was like, oh, what do I do? So I called the seller, and and Bob was like, you know what? Screw this guy. Like, cancel. Give him his money back. I don't even want to deal with this. You know what? I'm going to keep the property. The market's on fire. And, um, yeah, deal's off. And that was it. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, I never had the money, so I don't want to say I lost it, but it felt like a loss. It felt like someone ripped that out of my my hands. And, um, I had this moment. So again, you asked what deal stands out. This deal stands out. I had this moment. I'm 12 months in, I didn't have any other listings at the time. And this was the only deal and it wasn't a listing. It was just some off market deal that came about. And, uh, and it was just, it was just this moment, like, what am I going to do? And I'll tell you, I never thought about quitting. And that's, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't have anything in common with quitters. I don't like quitters. I don't want to be around them. I want nothing to do with them. I think quitting is a contagious disease, and I, I don't want to get infected with it, and I've never quit. So, But because I never was going to quit, it wasn't even an option. It's not an option in the Matthews family. I just kind of had this acceptance like, this sucks. It's going to be hard. It's going to be even harder than you thought. It's going to be the hardest thing you ever did. I meant mentally harder than my time at USC in football. We could talk about that. It's a, you know physically that was clearly much harder, but um, but it, it is what it is. So stop, stop fucking feeling sorry for yourself. Stop crying. Stop. You're not a victim. Toughen up. Be the guy that you think you are, and just move forward. And it, and, and that that's the
1: deal. It must help when mom has cinnamon toast crunch downstairs.
2: Yeah, that's my comfort food. Yeah, just you know it's <laughs> cocoa puffs. No, you no cocoa pebbles because you could you could eat the cocoa pebbles, and then the milk would turn to chocolate milk. So. Yeah. No, Love they, them. yeah. It's like what do they say? You, you know, you you're drinking to celebrate or you're drinking to commiserate. It's like I was I was eating cocoa pebbles because I was sad, but you know, I guess it did help. Good, good.
1: Any specific lesson learned from that? Was it just reinforcing the not giving up mentality? So
2: um, yeah, there's a practical lesson. I thought that's where you're going with it. And then there's like a metaphorical. Let me tell you the practical lesson. Let me talk to brokers out there. If your deal ever falls out of contract, it is your fault. A hundred percent of the time, it is your fault. Even when it's not your fault, it's your fault. There is always something you could have done. And I'm not saying it's an expectation, you should have done it, but when you look back, you could have done it. So you say, Well, how in the world could that have been my fault? I mean, how how many, where do I start? Well, one of the things is if you've never been in bed with a buyer before, you don't know how they're gonna, you don't know how they're gonna. Oh, we're just checking time. Just check. Yeah. yeah, we're good. Yep. All right. Cool. So, so let me start over. Let me, let me tell you like, yeah, there's a, there's a practical lesson and then there's like a metaphorical lesson. So i talk to all the brokers who might be listening and really anybody, but like, let's talk real estate brokerage. So you, you think about a deal like that and you say, how in the world could that have been my fault as the broker? How could I have known that that buyer would just kind of go crazy or get cold feet and what I tell brokers, and I know this to be true, it's not even a feeling, it's not even belief, it's not even a theory, is every deal that falls out of contract is your fault. Every deal. Because looking back, it's not an expectation you could have flushed it out, but looking back, you always see a path. Oh, wait, I could have found that out ahead of time. and um, And what I could have done, or what I could have done is I asked better questions about his funding, about his his lender, about his, you know, his LPs, like, have they been to the real estate? Have they seen the real estate? What are their yield expectations? Or in this, what are your expectations about the tenant's performance? Will you move forward with the deal? If you talk to the tenants and they say they're not doing well, um, how about this? Just simply put, next time a buyer goes hard with $500,000 on refundable, have it pass through from escrow into the seller's account. You can do that. It's called pass through deposit. I didn't know that. I mean, I knew it, but I didn't battle for it. I wasn't a good broker. I said, well, it's hard, right? Because like, the contingencies got waived, but possession is nine tenths of the law, and the title company is not going to get in the middle of that. They're not going to decide who you know winners and losers. They'll just file file an interpleader and say I'll let the courts decide. And you know, it's so there's there's always something I could have done. So there was a lot of brokerage lessons within that. Now at the time, I probably didn't even see those. I was just like, you know, I got screwed. But um, but yeah, the the metaphorical the 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 less tangible lesson was. Manage your expectations as it relates to counting your money. Like deals, that lesson taught me you should not count that money until the money is wired into your company's account and they hand you a check and you deposit the check and those funds actually clear. And that's when you, you know, if you still are mentally in a place you want to celebrate, that's when you celebrate, right? Of course, most of the time it's just a relief, but... But yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's always, every deal, there's something you can learn.
1: Yep. Great lesson. So moving on to another chapter in your career, after a prolific brokerage uh, career early on following college, uh, a lot of accolades and people can look at your bio and see all the awards won. You in about 2015, I believe, decide to build your own brokerage business Tell us about that, and tell us what's similar between building a brokerage and being a broker, and perhaps Mm -hmm. what's different as well.
2: So, you know, I've I've shared this story uh, more recently as I become more active on social media. Um, So, what Zach, give me a follow: Twitter, LinkedIn, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Instagram. We can say TikTok, but we don't really post. It's just I have a TikTok. I have a TikTok. This is great. Do you want to
1: drop all those? Drop the podcast as well? Yeah, let's no, no, let's no, drop no, them no, no, all in. Yeah, Plug the, them all.
2: Matthew's Ventality Podcast. Give it a follow. Best podcast in the game. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, so uh, 2015, uh, I've told this story, so forgive me if I'm, you know, repeat, I, I try and condense it down. So I'll set the stage. In 2014, I was at a company, Collier's International, big international company. Um, I was the number one producer globally. And it's a big, you know, was having a lot of success. I think we were a top team globally. Had A couple of young guys underneath me that were learning. Um, and everything was going great, making a ton of money and had no motivation. I've never had a vision to start my own company. It's never been an aspiration for me. So again, just, just to be clear, there are some people who are born and they say, one day I want to found a company. I want to be this. That was not me. I had a great gig. I was um, doing very well. Uh, not a comfortable, I mean, I was working like a like a total psycho, uh, but, I, you know, married, I think at the time was, yeah, I had two kids already, and just, you know, like, just working really hard, experiencing tremendous success, and in the beginning part of 2015, again, I'm going to keep this short, uh, got a call said, hey, we're going to go public, and part of going public, Collier's was owned, I think it was called First Service, they were going to split off Collier's, and as part of going public they're doing this kind of p roll up strategy where they're buying a bunch of boutique companies around well i guess the the globe but like in the us around the us in markets that they didn't have coverage or they were, they were light in coverage and and part of their deals they're kind of green to let's call it exclusive market coverage rights i'm going to use an example they buy this little this company you know who's houston realty advisors this isn't a real place but And, you know, they would, okay, here's your money up front, here's your earn out, here's your contracts, and then they'd say, okay, here, oh, yeah, and we'll give you exclusive market coverage. So no one within the Collier's network can do a deal in Houston unless they, you have, you get, you get half the fee or whatever they agreed to. Well, what was unique about my business more than anyone else at Collier's, they really didn't have any other retail advisors, no one, no one who did any business anyway. And um, all, most uh, other product types are very local you know, multifamily is very local, you're not gonna be a multifamily in LA and do a deal in Houston, okay, that doesn't even if you had a seller who wants to sell in Houston, you'd be like, Look, I can't handle that. Let me go out and find you the right guy. And maybe I'll get a referral. Same with industrial or, or leasing, or even in the debt side, it's less less relevant. But my business is retail, first of all, retail itself, multi tenant retail shopping centers a very, it's not a dense product. Okay, so even in, you know, a county, there might only be you know, 30, 40, 50 properties, now LA County is a big county, but 30, 40, 50 properties that would fall. So oftentimes you're working, you know, whole states, if not regions of the country, right? Especially when you get to a more institutional, like a grocery anchor product, you, you, in the Southeast, you might be working three, four states. And so that didn't, that, that, that product, the, the business plan that is necessitated by a very like non-dense product type, like shopping centers doesn't align with the business plan of a call years where they're saying, Hey, we're going to give exclusive market coverage rights. And on top of that, I had some young professionals that had reached out to me over the years saying, Hey, can you teach me the business? Can you mentor me? And I said, yes. And here's the structure. And then I, you know, I started teaching them and they shopping centers very, very complex. So I said, Hey, like, let's put you in single tenant net lease retail, one lease. What's the term? What's the What's the credit the tenant double, triple net? What are the rent to sales if we have access? So again, you know, it's not the most complicated product. So they were able to get off the ground pretty quick. And so we had this very, I had a really big shopping center business and a growing net lease business that are both geographically, we were doing deals in 30, 40 states a year. I think my last year at Collier's, you know, we might've had 130, 140 deals. Over 33 states. Well, again, so now Collier's is coming to us saying, hey, we're going to enforce this. This is what we're agreeing to because we're going to go public. And so now you got to start paying the local market guys up to half your fee. That's a non-starter. They're not adding any value. They don't even really know the product. They have no market share. And my attitude was like, if this was their market, how could I have ever earned this deal, right? What should happen is if I'm in LA and I'm calling, you know, I'm talking to a Blackstone about their portfolio, and, a, you know, I see on their sheet, they say, hey, we're going to be selling a deal in Houston. And I say, oh, well, what about that? They're like, well, Kyle, like, yeah, that's in Houston is a sale. But if we're going to use this company, we're going to use, you know, Joe and Susie down in Houston because they're the best. But I, I I never had that conversation. No one ever brought anyone else up. And so um, and if we have great representation in the market, I would bring them in because I, I saw value. It's just there are a lot of markets we didn't. And so they came and they're like, Hey, this is going to change. This is something you have to do. I said, that's not happening. They're like, well, yes it is. This is a new policy. I said, no, it's not, you know, it's, you know what happens if you try and enforce this, I'm going to leave. And that was effectively, that was, that was, that was how it happened. And so, you know, I'm at this big company and, you know, I made a, they're just like, I said, look, I think I got to go. And it was very amicable. It was very above board. Like there were a lot of discussions. There was no secret and it was we all kind of agree like ah it's a bummer but you know you guys you know Collier's is going to go on and do great with their IPO which they did they did phenomenal they crushed it and they were like look you're going to go on and do great it was very it was a very amicable divorce if that's it just creative differences i think is what they call it irreconcilable differences and so um it It was like, all right, well, let me go see, you know, I don't want to start my own company. That wasn't even something I was thinking about. I was like, let me go see, uh, let me, okay, but CBRE was the same thing. JLL was the same thing. And like, I don't even think they understood what, what I did. And then I wasn't going to go back to where I started. That didn't make sense. And everything else was a boutique. And I said, you know, I'm basically running a boutique. Why don't I just start my own thing? And that was, that was the idea of Matthews was, Okay, I'm just going to start my own thing. I had, you know, they gave me a couple of weeks to get my office space ready and have conversations, see whoever wanted to go. And everybody came with me and and that was it. It was, not, it was not a strategy. It was not this big vision I had. It was, again, not a victim. I could have stayed and, you know, gave a bunch of people money they didn't deserve. But I just said, yeah, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't pencil, not just for me, but for my younger teammates who are looking to build their business. Like that would be really detrimental to them. And uh, let's just start a boutique. My idea was like, you know, look, if it's successful, we could keep it, you know, a little boutique. If for whatever reason down the road, we want to just wrap it back into another bigger company, we could always do that. Definitely had no, no clue it would become what it is today, like zero. Um, But that's, that's the story of Matthews. That's, that's, you know, I think your question was like, Hey, you know, why'd you start your company? That's why.
1: It's amazing. Uh certainly been successful. The growth is amazing. Um still very actively hiring. How many markets are you in today? How many brokers does that uh comprise?
2: Yeah, we, we are we have twenty two offices um uh, around the country and, and growing fast. Uh brokers were right around seven hundred agents. Um and uh they're they're agents, in a sense, independent contractors, they they deploy into markets or product types where we see opportunity for deployment. And then we also just as important as the agents we have, we have it's all one company. But I always say we have a, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like a different company. We have, we have the platform the platform is traditional employees. It's, uh, it's property marketing it's creative it's social media it's transaction management it's hr legal compliance. it's still it's got
1: zach over here
2: big zach on uh in the social media game just uh making it happen so it's 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 the engine you know the agents of the car it's what you see on the outside it's real pretty and and like it's you know it drives but and then there's the engine it's like you know how how does this car perform it's going to be a function of the engine and um you know sometimes i say the platform is like the foundation of a house like it is the most important part, but you never see it. You know, it's a, what's the first part of a house you drive by the, it's the foundation. It's that concrete slab that if, if that ever went wrong, doesn't matter how beautiful and how fancy the house is, it's going to fall down. And the foundation of this company is the platform. And then, um, you know, the curb appeal is the agents.
1: Yep. Love it. Uh, so you're still very actively hiring. I know, uh, training and recruiting is really important to you. It's, uh, in part what you're passionate about, what's a common thread you see in a great agent or a great hire what are the attributes you think uh tend to be consistent with them
2: yeah i don't i don't know the answer to that question i've uh we've 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 spent so much time and energy and probably money over the years trying to find the the rosetta stone to good hires on the sales side like what makes a great agent i mean that would save us so much time energy and money and we've never found it and so you know we do like don't get me wrong we do the personality surveys we we do the the certain questions and um, the train in interviews like you know what's the greatest adversity you overcome like why do you need to be successful we do all that we we you know we sh- we nowadays we're like hey part of the process you got to come in and shadow an agent you know we don't want what agents do and really just how hard they work and the shock of making cold calls because like most people the only way to generate business is is to make cold calls donors to, to to try and spark a relationship and and communicate something of value to where they at least agree to meet. And then the meeting, you know, start that more personal relationship. But we really haven't discovered that the, the, the answer to that question, I would say, um, and it's hard for us to, to determine this on an interview is, uh, I would say the one common thread of our top agents is they're all terribly sore losers. Like they're so maniacally competitive and a loss is so revolting and like sickening to them that they can't process or handle losing i know it's like to be called a sore loser is an insult i just don't look at it that way like i'm a horribly sore loser you know and when i lose i, I really get angry and i go to a dark place and i it is i will do nothing to um whether it's learn a skill or have a better strategy to come back and beat whoever beat me it's just that's the way god made me it is what it is i'm sure there's a lot of psychology we could dive into over a beer later but um, yeah, sore losers. Uh, I love them. I don't want to play them in you know, ping pong or basketball or anything, but I love to have them as teammates because guess what? Sore losers hate losing so much. Guess what they tend to do? Win. They tend to win. Yeah, because because they can't lose because it is such it is such a shock to uh, biological, mental, physical shock to them that they will do whatever it takes to win and whatever it takes to win in brokerages show up at 5:45. It's make 500 cold calls a week. It is meet with anyone and any, everyone, whenever, wherever, however, it is go to 20 plus conferences a year. It is investing in your business. It is wearing a suit and tie. It is, um, preparing multiple times role-playing before pitches are even done so that you can flush out like potential objections ahead of time. It, it's all the, the crappy work of brokerage, the blocking and tackling that you don't want to do because sore losers can't lose. It's, it's, it's too painful. So the, the most common thing I would say amongst the top agents sore losers, how you find that out ahead of time. Generally speaking, it's hard. I'll tell you a program that works really well for us is our summer internship, Matthews University, which our new hires go through as well. It's a 60-day training but one of the greatest values of this company is we put our summer interns through Matthews University, we train them as if they're new hires. And this year, I think we had 240 interns across the country I mean, it was a big class. And um, no, 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 that includes it was 416, including new hires. But so 240 interns, I think I'm pretty, pretty right about that, Zach, and uh, 240 interns across, you know, whatever 70 universities and 20 different markets. And we love it uh, because, you know, we're training our new hires. We might as well tra- train them. It's not a huge opportunity cost to add another 200 people, believe it or not, because everything we do here is scalable. However, for us, it's a 60-day job interview. You, you really get to know these candidates, and you get to introduce them to brokerage and all the, 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 the amazingness of the industry. The, what, what, what we all love about brokerage, most of them, say, wow, this really is great. This is what I want to do. And some of them self-select. They're like, hey, you know what? This was a great summer. I, this is not what I want to do. Guess what? That just saved me. That saved me a four-month quitter. Someone who's in the business four months who we didn't have the internship and they're, they didn't know and they thought they'd love it, but they didn't. And so the summer internship is a great way for us to flush out who the good candidates are versus it's not even bad candidates. It's just who pe- people were. They're like, hey, this I understand the upside. I understand you could create tremendous wealth. I understand you can meet amazing people and learn so much about real estate, which I think is one of the coolest industries. And by the way, real estate is one of the few industries that every single human being in this country is affected by. Cause you know, in theory it's like everybody shops, not, you know, up until COVID everybody would, you know, a lot of people go to an office building. A lot of people order things on Amazon, the industrial side. And then a lot of people have apartments or, or homes. So I love real estate. We introduced them to it, but, um, but yeah, the summer internship is a great way for us to flush out who we want to hire and who we don't. Great. I want to note it seems as
1: if um, they're competitive with themselves, um, probably with others as well. But you have a great culture, really familial environment. I don't. I wouldn't describe it as cutthroat or any backstabbing. So it seems as if that competition is within. You know, they want to live up to their potential more so than. Competing with their neighbor. Would yeah, we,
2: we, pro, competition is huge. And, and this is something I got from Pete Carroll playing at USC. Like, you know, it's funny his name was Pete Carroll, but compete, you know, it's like, so it was like, it's a big thing for him. I think he wrote a book, uh, Always Compete, I wanna say. Probably mad if he was listening. No, I haven't read it, but I promise I will at some point. Uh, but, but yeah, being involved in that program was such a blessing because I got to see it firsthand, unbeknownst to me. I was sitting there like watching how he ran this high performance program that basically won every game. Right. But we had a great time. And so a lot of what I do here uh, now I'm aware of it, but even early on, like, again, unbeknownst, I I just didn't even understand where it was coming from. It's kind of what I thought. Oh, this is my gut intuition. No, it's like I was basically, I was basically mimicking what what Pete and the coaching staff there would do and um, is promote competition at, at every turn, but not Within the brokerage community, we don't compete for deals. I, again, I've been at companies where it's like, hey, you guys can compete for you. We don't do that. It's what we call sibling rivalry, right? It's, it's you guys compete with each other every day. Have a call contest. Have a meeting contest. Have a proposal competition. And make it a competition where there's carrots and sticks. Whoever wins, you know, the other guy buys him a beer. Like, you know, whoever loses has to do a funny prank someone else thinks of or whatever it is. Like we kind of, the agents kind of figure it out. But um, we promote the spirit of sibling rivalry, I would say sibling rivalry, having siblings is like, there's a way to compete in the sense, you want your siblings to be insanely successful. You want you want the world for them. You want them to be awesome. You want them to succeed. You want them to win, but you just you just wanna be a little better, right? It's like, I've been at companies where the culture was, I wanna be successful and this is a zero sum game, therefore I need you to be not successful, right? And at Matthews, it's like, no, I want the guy next to me. I want the gal next to me to make two, three, four million bucks next year. I just I just want to make one more dollar because I want to be number one. Not because I want them as number two, but because this is important for me. So we we very much create, foster, encourage an environment of of you know, friendly competition. Like where you where you'd go out with your buddies. Like, you know, it's funny. You go out with your friends and you'll create competition, but you're never like, oh, this is my competitor. Like, no, you, you do it for fun. Yeah. And well, when you lose, again, sore losers, you're not happy. You're not happy, but that in no way affects your friendship. And the best example I could use of Matthews, and I've never had anybody be able to tell me I'm wrong here, right? So convince me otherwise. is I tell them, I say, hey, listen, when I was at USC... I, let's play, I played safety. There were, at any given time, six to eight other safeties, right? And let's just say free safety, And or let's say I was a strong safety. Um, as I got bigger, I moved to strong safety. So there were four strong safeties on the team. And in football, it is a zero-sum game. There's no other deal. Like in brokerage, it's like, oh, you won that deal, but I might win another. But in football, there's one player on the field. So it is zero-sum. But those three other strong safeties who I was competing with to get on the field, those were some of my closest friends in my life. I never had any animosity. I never had any resentment. Those were my, those were my brothers. Like they're, they're my roommates. And every day while we're roommates, like we enjoyed each other's company, man. We had genuine love for each other. We would talk some shit like, oh man, I'm going to go out. I'm going to beat you. Like I'm going to be the star. Like, but it was, I never looked at them. Like you're doing this to me. Like you're taking something from me. So how in football where it actually is more a zero sum game than brokerage, could I have that love and affection for my teammate, but here you can't no, nah, it's bullshit. You can. And everyone, most people at Matthews get it. But even every now and then, if we have to just like sit someone down, I was like, look that you don't need to have that mindset. And here's my analogy. No one's ever been saying, well, no, you're wrong. And you know, it's just, it's just how they're viewing it. It's like, look, that the guy sitting next to you. Yeah. He ended up becoming, he was number one in the contest. You were number two. And I'm happy that again, sore loser. You, you hate the feeling. But you're not a victim. It's not because of him. It's everything in your life is in your control. And that's what I learned at USC. And unfortunately, unfortunately, it was a blessing and a curse. I played with Troy Polamalu. You ever heard of that guy? Of course. NFL Hall of Famer. Like, great hair. Yeah, great hair. Yeah, that's true. He does have great hair. Um, and him and Ed Reed, like the two best safeties in NFL history, modern era. From the
1: U, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. From,
2: from the U. And um, I... Uh, I never looked at Troy like, you know, you're you're the reason I'm not playing. It just it wasn't the culture at SC. It was like, I'm the reason I'm not playing. I got to be better than that guy. Now, in football, maybe in brokerage, but in football, there just came a point where there was no amount of film I could watch. There was no amount of weights I could lift. There was no amount of running I could do to increase my speed to be better. He just he – just, God made him different, man, and he just was better. And I never gave up. I never stopped. I never accepted that, but I never – Looked at him and said, you know what? Like, I fucking hate you. like Because I didn't. I, I love Troy. I still text with him a couple times a year. I saw him in New York uh, a year or two ago, and we spent some time together. Like, And he said he's a wonderful guy. My point is um, there's no reason that you can't have that environment in a professional setting. In fact, there's more reasons to have that environment in a professional setting than there is to have on a football field. Yet football gets it right. So why can't we get it right? And so that has driven my, it's driven my belief in how to build this company. It's really the ethos of this company. Yeah, you guys should compete to be starters. You guys should compete to own this market. You guys should compete to to be the number one agent in your office or your product type or nationally. I want that. That's great. That's healthy competition. But his success is not mutually exclusive to yours and vice versa. And you guys, through competing with each other and pushing each other and challenging each other, and we do a lot of company competitions where we put them in this position, but we encourage them. Hey guys, some, everybody in the office today has to find someone else and start a competition. I don't care if it's a push-up competition. I don't care if it's a call competition. I don't care if it's a competition of, you know, who can get hung up on the most, like as a joke, uh, hopefully they're not doing that. But my point is like, you got to compete. We encourage that, but we also constantly remind everyone that the success of your teammates is in no way exclusive to yours. In fact, it is an accelerator to yours because when you're around success, you tend to rise to that success.
1: Well, you can definitely feel that team environment here, and I want to thank you again for hosting us it's in your me. office. Um, and uh, to that end, I've heard on the street that when you hire an uh, agent from Matthews, you're really hiring the firm. You get the full muscle of that machine and that engine. Yeah. And uh, this support not just some lone wolf so uh, it certainly resonates well and- uh, l-
2: let me touch on that because um yes from a culture standpoint yeah but but let me just make it from an actual practical sense you know we say all the time like when you hire Matthew Matthew's agent you're you're actually hiring a company and uh you know I just I'm not gonna I'll just tell you places that I worked and we have a lot of I have a lot of teammates now that didn't necessarily start a lot of Matthew's is born and raised and, and I think that's why the culture is so strong but there's there's and every day it seems like they're coming through the door more and more people reaching out like crazy right now, uh, wanting to be part of this, wanting to be part of the energy, be part of the, the culture, but also be part of like the operational support system. That's where I'm going with this is when I was at previous companies, there, there was no real company behind you. You know, so if you say, OK, like an owner says, hey, Kyle, I want you to put together a BOV. I want you to tell me what my property is worth. I more or less had to do all that. I had to create the package. I, you know, in InDesign, I had to have my template. I probably have my own template. I had to underwrite it. I had to, and again, pulling comps, pricing deals, that's brokerage. You should always be doing that. I had to coordinate the ground and aerial photography. I did decide if I even wanted to spend money on that. If I earned a listing now, it's like, okay, who do I send it out to? Do I pay for the RCM blast? Do I just send it to my Excel sheet? Um, be a constant contact or MailChimp or, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of like, d- email distributions. How much is that going to cost? Do I want to spend the money? Let's talk about the database. What is the database? It's just whoever I have personally researched, or maybe, you know, best case scenario, I'm on a team of five other agents. They've been in the business longer than me. So now collectively we have 20,000 people. That's how the business has been. And believe it or not, and this is insane, is still more or less run at across the industry, even the big publicly traded brokerage companies is a bunch of agents and, and teams of agents, you know, two, three, four guys working off an Excel sheet with their own little iteration of Salesforce CRM, that's it, you know, and if if they're not putting the packages together, it's because they hired someone and they're personally paying or contributing, which the worst part of that isn't the money, it's the time they got to manage those people And and managing people is, it takes effort, it takes time and it's just, it's all loss of time efficiency which takes you away from the only thing you should really be doing as a broker which is what we call RPAs, revenue producing activities, which is calling, meeting, pitching, and executing business. Like that. that's you know, that that was the big that's the biggest change in Matthews is when you hire a Matthews agent, 95 plus percent of their time they actually get to spend on doing the job you hired them to do which is selling your property, leasing your property, or finding you dead because they have a p- massive, massive support platform behind them that just doesn't exist at other companies. Period. Full stop. Like uh, this is what I do for a living. I know, you know. So that's I would say the biggest de- look. What has contributed? What eight and a half years since we were founded? You know, I'm I, my understanding is we're the largest privately held brokerage company in North America at this point. How did we get there? We're self funded, zero, zero investment, zero debt, nothing. Just just homegrown through our own free cash flow. Like how do we do that? It's not just because we work really hard. We work harder than anyone else. Right. It's not just because we have a great culture, we have a better culture than anyone else. It's also the platform, the support, the operational efficiency that is created for agents on, by, on their behalf by awesome teammates on the platform side.
1: Great. I can feel the evil eye coming from uh, our production team over here who got, wanted a lot of real estate questions. We got about 10 minutes and okay. I just wanted- Great. I think this, what we have is
2: so good. I don't want to distract from it too much. She, so says, she says that to everybody, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> she does. Uh, let's get into real estate a little bit. You have a really unique view into the market. You have a lot of data at your hands, boots on the ground. You have an army out there. You know, there's a lot publicized about this state of the industry. What do you see? What's your sentiment? Obviously, it's complex, depends on the property type in the market. I'll get into those in a little more of like a rapid fire way, but just generally, what do you see in the commercial real estate industry today?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's brutal, man. It's tough. Like in our business, in the transaction side, depending whether you're looking at Green Street or CoStar or RFCA, which I think is MSCI now uh, reports, I mean, transaction velocity is down between 60 to 75%, depending on are you looking at institutional sub-institutional product type? I mean, you know, and we'll talk, we could talk specifics. Like it is a really, really historically tough time right now in the brokerage space from a trend, from an investment sales standpoint. Um, we are doing significantly better than that. And, uh, I'm very excited to, to say that, um, we are still growing. We are, financially, um, doing very, very well. And I think some of that is work ethic, Some of that is a uh, platform. Some of that is, you know, I say a little luck. We don't do a lot of office. We don't do almost any office. So office is like, you know, there's a bomb dropped over office right now and you know, we can talk further, but, um, but yeah, it's a really, really tough time out there. And even our guys, they got to battle harder for less deals. They got to manage expectations more. They got to work harder for the same paycheck. I mean, there's 2020 I always tell people like you probably weren't as good as you thought you were in 21 and you're definitely not as bad as you think you are in 23 right and there there is one reason for this and it is cost of capital it is the fed raising rates faster than they have I think in 43 years so I think by definition that is a black swan event this is one of those markets that agents today will will big brother agents in 10 years say oh yeah you think it's bad now you should have been there in 2023 and Two, twenty-two, three, and even into 24, when the Fed raised rates 525 basis points in 15 months, like that is a big deal. And when, you know, cap rates, depending on product type are four, fives and sixes, because debt's two, three, and four, and then all of a sudden debt becomes six, sevens and eights, cap rates can't be at four, fives and sixes. They have to go up materially. And that is a slow process that takes tremendous time exacerbated by non-motivated sellers who eventually just pull out of the market and exacerbated by, by just a lot of brokers who fundamentally aren't sound, but they were able to make money over the last respectfully 10 years. COVID was a start stop three, four months. But the market came back so fast that unless you like panic quit in COVID, you're, you really haven't been through a tough market since 2010. And so we have brokers we in the industry, Matthew's only been around eight years. So we have brokers in the industry who are 12 years in making 2 million bucks a year who have never, ever, ever experienced this. And they have no idea what to do. Right? And their businesses are down 70, 80, 90%. They've never managed price expectations. They've never had to battle just for one buyer to hang on for deal life and escrow. They've never had to ask really difficult questions up front of buyers to vet to keep deals from falling out. They've never not had lenders. Right? And it's not just the asset level debt, whether it's purchased purchase debt or refinancing, it's the cost of LP, of equity has gone up significantly. There's still a lot of dry powder that wants to go into real estate, but even with yields aside, they're, they're, they're a little nervous. And so, um, it is a really, really hard time. You know, this is, if you're, if you're a killer, if you are committed to being successful in real estate, whether you're a principal, whether you're a broker, any service provider, this is what you should want. You, I know that sounds crazy. I didn't understand the GFC. I had, I had a senior agent, senior management saying, Kyle, this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. And I, my hand to God said, you're fucking lying, man. This is not good. And it wasn't until after we came out of it, I was like, they were right. It was the best thing ever happened to me because the deals go away. 90% of the deals go away. 90% of the brokers eventually go away. The deals come back. There's 90% of brokers don't come back. They're gone. And it takes a long time to fill up the broker bucket and so that two, three, four year period coming out of a really bad velocity recession like we're in today, that's the gold rush. So you got to hang in there. You, you can't quit, right? Well, you're, you're, you quit, you're a quitter. I keep saying this. Um, nobody wants to be a quitter. At least when I was growing up, that was, that was an insult. That was a really bad insult. Uh, still is in my book. And um, you got to hang in there. And you know, it's funny, I moved to Nashville four years ago from LA and I lived just outside the city on a bunch of land and so I drive by the first 15 minutes of my drive to to work in the morning or my last 15 the morning, is farms like, it, you know, there's a lot of equestrian properties, but there's farming and you learn a lot living out in the country. You know there you learn a lot. And what you see is there is more activity on the farms in the winter than there is in the summer. It's in the winter that they're tilling the soil and, you know, fertilizing and. You know, putting nitrogen back in the soil, spraying for weeds, like growing it up, and it's you know February, March, maybe March, April, where they're planting the seeds again. This it's not warm out, the sun's not out, it's winter, it's it's not good weather, but that's when you 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 do all the the dirty work, so that one day when the sun's out, you can eat and eat a lot, and it's in the in, in the spring, in the summer, all the way up until the weather turns again in the fall. Like you just kind of let it grow, and right now metaphorically, it's the winter. And if you don't know any better, that's very depressing and demoralizing. Oh, it's a bad time. No, no, no. This is the t- this is the time. This is the time that you you till the soil, which is your sub market. It is the time that you plant the seeds, which are the relationships with your owners. This is the time that you put yourself in the position to have the most unbelievable harvest you ever you ever could imagine, and you feed your family for generations. It is this time. It is not when it's good. When it's good, everybody. Anybody can get into brokerage, your competition floods the market, you reduce your fees, you overprice your deals, because like, you have to, but now this is when the really, really, really good brokers show themselves. And there is a there is a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow, you can't even imagine.
1: Great. So let's speed round the property types, just a quick thought, quick sentence, quick soundbite on each one. There's still a few questions left on this, but I think this will be good first. Retail.
2: Awesome. Uh, net negative construction over the last 15 years positive net net absorption highest um, lowest vacancy rates in in m- modern history i would say rental growth and any tenants paying rent that have been around survived the gfc amazon apocalypse and covid they are incredibly well run viable businesses even the few businesses the legacy businesses that need to be go bankrupt the bed baths When they went bankrupt, a good buddy of mine runs a big public REIT, and we were talking about this. They gave—Bed Bath gave back a bunch of space. They released it for 31% on average higher rents. So even your downside is your upside. Retail, never a better time to be in retail, and it's been 15 long years where I've waited to say that. Office. Sucks. It's it's tough. Um, I love office. I love coming to the office every day. I love dressing like a professional— You know, it's, it's a, you you dress casual, you work casual, right? Um, But there are some fundamental product challenges with office, starting with COVID. And um, I don't believe most jobs are meant to be work from home, but I absolutely recognize some jobs can totally be a work from home without productivity loss. I think most jobs you do lose productivity at home. This is my opinion. I think there's a report that came out that 18% productivity loss on average. That's not surprising, but there are some jobs that uh, productivity loss. Um, But there are people who, you know, married to jobs. No, you know, they have kids, no child, like they, now that they've gotten a taste of working from home, it makes their life easier. There's just a percentage. The market will never come back to office, whether it's, 10 or 20 or 30, 40% of workers, right? I think a lot of people will. Um, on top of that, uh, this is, uh, you know, I'm not going to dip my toe in the political arena, but there are some in- insanely bad decisions being made by cities, specifically heavily blue cities, like a Chicago, a San Francisco, LA, New York, when it comes to crime and homelessness, again, I'm not I'm not offering an opinion on it uh, in terms of the policies. I'm just stating the outcome, which is it is making people uncomfortable to come into uh, urban uh, core business district's urban office. Suburban office, fine, but most office is urban and it is making people uncomfortable to come down to work there or to live there. And so that's increasing the exodus. And so I do think eventually there's a place for office. I think it's gonna be, much like retail, it's been like a 10, 15 year finding itself. I think office is just beginning. It's 10 to 15 year journey to finding what the next iteration of office looks like
1: industrial and warehouse,
2: you know, best look, best looking person at the bar. Everybody wants to talk to him. Everybody wants to be in an industrial. Uh, You know, I have a lot of friends who own industrial. They're going to be offended that I say it. Anyone in industrial over the last 10 years looks smart, looks like a hero. It's like one of those rising tides, lift all boats. Now there's there's better industrial owner-operators, there's better industrial investors, and in there and there's some bad ones, but even the bad ones have made a lot of money. Multifamily. Tale of two cities. Um, and it, it it seems to kind of swing in TikTok, like uh, multifamily in the Southeast and pro-growth states and uh, w- was um, the bell of the ball for like the last 10 years, right? Even during covid it was great, and now I think there's inherent challenges with a lot of a lot of the deals, the class B suburban, or class B um, garden style, where somebody, you know, bought a deal for 40 million, put high high levered, assuming there's rent growth, adjustable rate mortgage to get a lower teaser rate, they're in bad trouble. I think a lot of class A multifamily developers are in big trouble refinancing out of their bridge or construction debt in a lot of uh, those gross cities. And on the flip side, um, there's, you know, let's call them blue cities where, because of that, it's been very hard to build, so they're not oversupplied. They still have tremendous rent go- growth, but the question is, can you get to the rent growth? Because most of those cities have rent control, rent stabilization, vacancy control, and so multifamily is very, very market specific. Hospitality
1: out of bounds. I know, kind of a little more esoteric.
2: Yeah, we I'm not. We don't do a lot of hospitality. We do hospitality, but it's mostly it's mostly smaller product, and um, I not, you know. What I know of hospitality is what I read about that it's actually doing very well. I think it will be one of the first uh, indicators, economic indicators that suggest we are shifting, which I personally believe the economy is shifting. I, I, again, I'll, I'll go on offer a prediction. I think we will be in a recession next year. I don't think it's going to be terrible, but I think it will be one. And I think um, this is just an opinion that hospitality is. Uh, it's had a nice little run at pre, post-COVID, but um, I think a, a report just came out that in Q3 of this year, uh, I think the Fed said uh, Americans will have, have more or less gone through their excess COVID savings. We have 1 trillion, for the first time ever, 1 trillion in, in credit card debt, and credit card interest is very expensive. We have um, student debt restarting after, what, 18, 24 months of it being paused. So you have a lot of negative factors that impact whether people blow money on vacations. And so I, I think if you're in hotels and you have a, you've executed your value add strategy, now is the time to sell. I know interest rates don't necessarily help you out there but um i i'm pessimistic on hospitality over the next 12 24 months
1: all right well it's almost uh time i'm gonna do a rapid fire pop culture speed oh, around way. i hope you're ready one word answers and then we'll let you uh go back to building a great business mm-hmm. favorite movie step brothers favorite restaurant and or best place for a closing dinner
2: nobu in malibu
1: I know the answer to the next question. I was amazed. I learned it last night. First concert.
2: Nuke is on the Block.
1: Any quotes that you think help define your life?
2: You
1: can always take the pass if you want. No, 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 no. Okay.
2: I, I, uh, I'll have to come back to that one.
1: All right. No worry. Uh, I, the, the, the
2: one I always think of is the man in the arena. It's a very common one, is but it's a very long one by Teddy Roosevelt.
1: Great, great quote, yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah, that's a it's just it's just one. like
2: a paragraph. So I was like, oh, I can't provide it off the top of my head. We'll let but, you
1: recite it yeah, another time go. for us. Uh, what kind of music do you listen to today?
2: It depends on the mood. I uh, go between and, and 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 how many kids are in the car, right? If it's just me in the car, I might have some hip hop, you know, with some bad language. Uh, but if my kids are in the car, it's usually some country, they, the EDM, like they like house music, pop music. I have a nine and I have four kids, two daughters, nine and six. And, um, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, uh, I am now, um, getting into Taylor Swift, right? So I don't necessarily like the music, but my daughters do. And I, it's a small, small sacrifice to pay to make them happy.
1: Great. We have a uh, very young audience, I like to think. I think it's uh, ages uh, across the board, but certainly some young listeners trying to break into the industry. Any last advice for a young listener, maybe interested in getting into the industry or just starting their career?
2: Yeah, just starting their career. It's not unique to real estate. I, I Again, I've only been in real estate, but I don't think people would disagree with what I'm about to say is every industry is hard. Every, jo- every job is hard. Um, every job carries its benefits and its drawbacks and what i'd tell you is if you want to live an extraordinary life then you must expect extraordinary sacrifice and you don't get all the upside in life without a downside you don't get to create crazy wealth you don't get all these wild things and these trips and this this lifestyle that you envision for yourself without giving something up and generally speaking it's it's early in your career you've got to front load your career in terms of time invested whether it's in brokerage whether it's uh you know, you're a teacher or you're in finance or you're a mechanic. It doesn't matter what you do. If you want to be great at something and with great, oftentimes in a profession, being great at something comes with great wealth. And that's that's at least often the motivation in your 20s. Like, you have to be willing. You have to be prepared. You have to accept. And you have to be willing to put in tremendous effort and energy, which that, that time has to come from somewhere. And it's going to come from working out. It's going to come from socializing with your buddies is going to come from work life balance and all that. You know, it's going to come from somewhere or, you know, I, I said this the other day, I said, you got to choose your hard life. All right. Because someone might look at say, Hey, you got to, from 22 to 35, you're going to work 80 hours a week. Right. I'm just, I'm just generalizing here. But by doing that, it's going to set you up to live whatever life you want. And they'd be like, that's so hard. I said, no doubt, no doubt. Working 13, 14, 15 years where all you do is work. Let's call it. That is really hard. But you know what sounds harder to me? Working 40 hours, a week, 40 hours a week for 40 years and basically always having to tell yourself no because you can't afford something. Hey, and like you, you sit there and say, oh, you can't afford the nice vacation, you can't afford the nice watch. Like, that's bullshit. You don't need those things. How about you have some brilliant kid and the best school in town costs $40,000 a year is a private school and you say, I can't send them there. So no matter what, that, that to me is much harder than working 80 hours a week when, I'm, when I have no responsibility, respectfully. So no matter what, you've got to choose your hard life, okay? That, that's how I always looked at it. And when I had to say, okay, I could, I could do this, meet, you know, I could just kind of punch the clock and do 40 hours and just exist, or I could front load and give up so much, but then I could really kind of dictate the terms and live the life I dream of living. That was an easy choice for me. And I'm many ways on the other side now, it was the best choice I ever made. And it wasn't just me, it was my wife and I made it together because my sacrifice is hers and hers is mine. So it's um, you got to choose your hard life. And what I tell you, if you're getting in the business, toughen the fuck up, stop feeling sorry for yourself, you're not a victim, life's not fair, and if anyone ever told you it should be, they're fucking liars. Excuse my language, they're liars. That's bullshit. And they're lying to you either because they don't care about you or someone told them that, and they're a victim. And so just get ready for it. Life can be amazing. You can do great things. Everyone is capable, definitely within brokerage, of being amazing and and basically laying out the life they want to live. But you got to sacrifice for it. So prepare yourself for that or pre- prepare yourself for your average life. Either way, it's going to be hard. Choose your hard life. Toughen up.
1: Well put. We're getting the uh, wrap-it-up signals. Um, The notorious Kyle Matthews, thank you very much. All the listeners should um, listen to the Matthews mentality, one of the best commercial real estate.
2: The best, one of the best. What's up with that?
1: Well, you know, Craxy's pretty good, too. But, you know, you've got a great podcast. Appreciate it. Also, sign in. Uh, Twitter, Uh, Zach can give all those handles. I don't have them offhand. Instagram, LinkedIn, Kyle Matthews. Kyle right. Matthew, CEO, TikTok coming soon? Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Well, I know you've got I don't,
2: a. The Chinese are tracking me. I don't want to be on that.
1: Yeah, I know you've got a long, busy day already. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, appreciate all the time you gave us. Also appreciate your hospitality and your studios. So uh, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks to everyone listening. And uh, we'll see you next time.
0: Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure not to miss the next one. Visit go.crexi.com forward slash podcast and sign up to get the very next episode delivered straight to your inbox. You can also subscribe to the Crexi podcast on your favorite podcast app or check out our YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash Crexi for video recordings of each episode. Goodbye, stay well, and we'll see you next time.